This message was presented at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Well, good morning, GYC. And it's good to see you here at this seminar on every wind of doctrine. My name is Norman McNulty. I'm a neurologist practicing in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. And I've been asked by the GYC team to do a seminar on various doctrinal issues and heresies that are affecting the Seventh-day Adventist Church right now. So just to give you a bit of a roadmap for where the seminar is headed, we have two seminars today and four tomorrow. So for the two today, the two this morning are going to be on the issue of the Godhead or the Trinity And the first one, we're going to spend time talking about Christ, the everlasting Son. The second one is going to be on the Holy Spirit, or the third person of the Godhead. And then tomorrow, we are going to deal with various areas of confusion about prophecy, date setting, 2520, things of that nature. The second seminar tomorrow, which will be the fourth of the series, is going to deal with the issue of confusion on authority in the church. What authority does the general conference in session have and should that be followed and why are certain entities of the church not following it? Then the last two are going to deal more with the gospel and sanctuary issues. We're going to deal with the book Questions on Doctrine and some of the theological shifts that came into Adventism as a result of that, most notably Desmond Ford's attack on the sanctuary message. And we'll finally wrap up with uh, a look at the false gospel versus the true gospel. So that's kind of where we're headed with this seminar. So I'm going to have a word of prayer, and then we're going to get started with our presentation for this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here to GYC. And Lord, we desire to see this work to the end. As this theme of the conference is this year, we desire to be alive at the end of the world, and we want to be part of this closing work. So Lord, I pray that we would have understanding of doctrinal truths in Scripture that will help us to stay on the the straight and narrow pathway and not be confused by various ideas that could lead us off the path. So I pray that you would speak through me now and help this presentation to be clear and to be a blessing to those who are listening. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the title for the presentation this morning is The Everlasting Son. Jesus is the Son. He is the Everlasting Son. Now, this first slide I'm going to point out is a book by a pastor in Australia. It's a book entitled The Trinity, What Has God Revealed?, I have found this book to be very helpful on this entire issue, and I'm going to make mention of this again at the end of the seminar. For those of you who may be interested in getting a copy of this book, it's available at the Audioverse booth if you'd like a copy. But some of my ideas, not all of them, but some of my ideas came from reading through this book. Now I'm going to read a statement from Testimonies, Volume 5, page 707. God will arouse his people if other means fail. Heresies will come in among them, which will sift them, separating the chaff from the wheat. You know, the reality is is that we are the Laodicean church. We are lukewarm. We've fallen asleep. We're the ten virgins. We're five are wise and five are foolish. But there's this sleeping state in the church. And so sometimes God has to allow heresies to come into the church to wake the church up. It's unfortunate, but that's the purpose of heresies. The Lord calls upon all who believe his word to awake out of sleep. Precious light has come, appropriate for this time. It is Bible truth showing the perils that are right upon us. This light should lead us to a diligent study of the scriptures and a most critical examination of the positions which we hold. So I'm certainly not afraid to examine our positions from the Bible, but we also want to 
rightly examine and come to the correct conclusion. Now, I want you to go to Galatians chapter 5, because sometimes I hear people say, you know, why are you so hard on people that believe in a a different view than what the Seventh-day Adventist Church teaches on the Trinity when we have people teaching evolution and we have people promoting LGBT stuff in the church, and obviously I'm opposed to all of that, but heresy is heresy whichever way it may be, and notice what the Bible says about heresy. So heresy is not harmless, in case you're wondering. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19, says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Now the first ones are pretty obvious. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions. But notice this next one. Heresies you realize that heresies or false doctrine are a manifestation of the carnal mind. Now, let me give you uh, an illustration or a scenario that you may have seen played out in your local church, and if you've seen it once, you'll see it a hundred times around the world field. Someone comes to your church and says, I have new light that our church doesn't understand. And we're going to talk about a number of these issues. It might be their viewpoint on the Godhead, or it could be their viewpoint on the 2520, or it may be on feast keeping, or it might be on any other number of issues. And they'll say, this is the present truth for Adventists that is not being accepted in the church right now. And in order for us to experience righteousness by faith and to receive the seal of God, we need to accept this because what the church is teaching is wrong. And because a lot of our people haven't studied and this person comes into the church and they have reams of spirit of prophecy quotes and Bible verses that seem to support what they're saying, but if you dig through it, it's basically a bunch of stuff that doesn't prove what they're saying. Then at the end of the day, you get a split in the church because some people are like, oh, wow, this is the new truth. We need to accept it. And this guy's serious. He, he uses Ellen White. And then people get confused, and then you have a split, and it, and if you've seen it once, you've seen it a hundred times, and people say, how could you disfellowship this brother from the church? He's using the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, but the reality is that when you push false doctrine in the church, and the church says, no, we've taken a stand on this, and we're going to talk about this, general conference and session has highest authority in the world church, but even at your local church, the local church has has a say over your church membership, and God has delegated that authority to the local church. When a local church says, this is what we believe, you cannot teach this false doctrine in our church, and the person says, I'm going to teach it anyway because this is the truth, that's an evidence of a carnal mind. That's heresy. That's the work of the flesh. Now, we're not talking about variant views on finer points of prophecy that there isn't an official position in the church on. We're talking about things that the church has a clearly defined viewpoint on, and yet people are still pushing it. You know, one of the issues about truth versus error is that those who promote error make plain statements seem complicated. Have you ever noticed that? So, you know, we're going to look at some of these verses where Jesus is clearly defined as being God, and the anti-Trinitarian movement says, no, but that doesn't really mean that. Well, actually it does, but it doesn't fit within your construct of what you believe it should mean. And so then we get into a lot of issues. So, And I've, I've seen this especially with the 2520 movement, where they would have like 50 Ellen White statements to try to lead you to, at the very end, that therefore proves that the 2520 is a true prophecy. Yet there's not a single statement in in all of Ellen White's writings where she even references the 2520 specifically by name. So when you have to use reams of quotes to prove one point, that should raise some red flags. Now I'm going to read to you briefly 
The Seventh-day Adventist belief on the Trinity, this is fundamental belief number two. There is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a unity of three co-eternal persons. God is immortal, all-powerful, all-knowing, above all, and ever-present. He is infinite and beyond human comprehension, yet known through his self-revelation. God, who is love, is forever worthy of worship, adoration, and service by the whole creation. And you can see the Bible verses that are in the fundamental belief book that support that view. Now, the next fundamental belief is specifically about the Father. This is fundamental belief number three. God, the eternal Father, is the creator, source, sustainer, and sovereign of all creation. He is just and holy, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And you can read on the qualities and powers exhibited in the Son and the Holy Spirit are also those of the Father. There's some more verses that point that out. Now, this is where we're going to specifically get into... Um, our topic about Jesus being the everlasting Son. This is fundamental belief number four. God, the eternal Son, became incarnate in Jesus Christ. Through him, all things were created. The character of God is revealed. The salvation of humanity is accomplished, and the world is judged. Forever truly God, he became also truly human, Jesus the Christ. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived and experienced temptation as a human being, but perfectly exemplified the righteousness and love of God. His miracles, he manifested God's power and was attested as God's promised Messiah. And you can go on and read the rest of that. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But that's fundamental belief number four. Now I'm going to share with you a viewpoint from the anti-Trinitarians. Now, again, I have friends that believe this, so I, I don't dislike these people. I'm just saying these are their viewpoint, and I want to make sure that I'm accurately reflecting what they say. So this is actually a statement from an individual who believes um, in a different viewpoint than what the Seventh-day Adventist Church believes about Christ. So Notice what they say. They say, Jesus is referred to as God in Hebrews 1, 8 and John 1. Also, all things were created by him. This absolutely establishes his divinity and his preexistence, but the terms God and Son of God establishes the relationship between two beings. Now, so far you're thinking, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Um, now, notice how they continue. They say, the best way to understand the usage of the term God is by the name Adam. When taken in the strictest sense, Adam is the name of a single individual. The term Adam can also mean man, can also refer to mankind, a race of beings, or to both Adam and Eve, um, scripture that is in the image of God. Um, so it is the Father speaking to the Son. Now, going on, he says, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God created him. Male and female created he them. He says, many read into Genesis 1, a trinity, but there is only... Um, but there's only one being in all the scripture that is in the image of God that's referring to Christ. And then he goes on to say Ellen White backs this interpretation unequivocally. Um, Early writings, um, 145, speaking of God, when he said to his son, let us make man in our image. So he goes on to say that there are only two beings, um, not three, He says, we believe that this is because God was illustrating in the creation of man the relationship between the Father and the Son. Um, And then it goes on to say Adam was first and then Eve was brought forth. But no, no, notice this. This is where things become interesting. In the same way the Father is God and that he was first, the Son is not God. Check this out now. This is getting serious. The Son is not God in the strictest sense of personality, but is God in substance and nature, even though his personality had a beginning in eternity. So now, this may or may not make sense to you, but let me try to explain what they're saying. What they're saying is that the Father has existed throughout the everlasting ages of eternity. But Jesus came out of the substance of the Father. This is what they're saying. This is not what I believe, just to be clear. That Jesus came out of the substance of the Father in what they say sometime in eternity past. So Jesus is of of the substance of the Father, which makes him the Son of God, but in the strictest sense, he really is not God. He's the Son of God, and he's a divine being, And so he's God by 
substance and nature, but not in personality. So, we're going to talk about this a little bit more as we go here, but when you start to say that Jesus is not God in personality, whether you want to admit it or not, you are making Jesus lower than the Father. Now, you, say, you can say, no, I'm not, but that's what you're doing. Because if he's not God in personality, then he doesn't have the same equality that the Father has. And that becomes a problem because... Philippians 2.6 says that Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So they're saying Jesus is God in nature, he's divine, but God is a reference primarily to the Father. So now I'm, I'm going to go, that, that's from the statement from the Anti-Trinitarian. I'm going to outline some of what I believe to be the errors of this movement. And I, I do hasten to add, there are some variations um, among Anti-Trinitarians, so not all of them believe exactly the same. But these are some of the ideas that are being put out there. So they say the Father is the one true God. They call themselves the one true God movement based on John 17, 3, where Jesus says to the Father that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So they say, see, Jesus is calling the Father the one true God, and he doesn't acknowledge himself to be such. But then they say that Jesus is Lord, so we have one Lord, Jesus Christ, his Son, who is a divine being. He's the Son of God, but not God the way the Father is. And they say Jesus was begotten or brought forth from the bosom of the Father in eternity past or in the distant past. And and we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit in the next presentation. They say the Holy Spirit is not a distinct being, but an influence or a force or a power, but not actually a specific being. And then some of them, I don't know that all of them say this, but some of them are certainly saying that the current Seventh-day Adventist teaching on the Trinity is the omega of apostasy. We're going to see why they say that probably in the next presentation. They say you cannot experience righteousness by faith or receive the latter rain unless you see this truth. Now, this next point may be more of an extreme view from a certain class of anti-Trinitarians, but I have seen some of them say that because the Father is the one true God, to worship Jesus as God is a violation of the first commandment, which says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So then they say that that is breaking the Ten Commandments to worship Jesus as God. Maybe not all of them teach that, but I've certainly seen some. And so they say Seventh-day Adventists are worshiping a false god. So that's where... um, some of them land. Now, just to go on a little bit further, some of you may have heard of the term Arianism or semi-Arianism. Arianism teaches that there was a time in the past that Jesus was not. Now, semi-Arianism better fits where the pi- some of the pioneers and some of the current anti-Trinitarians land, and that is this, that Jesus actually, in a sense, has always existed because his substance was always in the Father. So Arians say, no, Jesus was brought forth, but he didn't exist in time past. Semi-Arians say, well, he always existed because his substance was always in the Father. Now, they say he proceeded from the substance or body of the Father and was begotten and is a literal son. Now, this is where I, I'm trying to be respectful here, but, you know, they say the Bible says he is the son. We need to take it as it literally reads. But you're now placing a human construct on that meaning because then I ask, if you want to push hard and say he's a literal son, then who is his literal mother? Now, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but you can push that too far. And to say he has to be a literal son and his father is his literal father and he came out of the bosom of the father. But then it's not a perfect construct because he has no mother. So sometimes we can make things more complicated than they need to be. So semi-Arianism thus teaches that the substance of Jesus always existed in the substance of the Father. Now you may be asking, well, hey, didn't some of the pioneers believe this? It's true, they did. And I'm going to um, quote now from E.J. Wagner. The first thing I'm going to say, though, is this. <laughs> as best as I can tell, 
the pioneers, and there was differing viewpoints, by the way. They didn't all believe this. But the pioneers did not make this attesting truth the way some of the anti-Trinitarians are making it today. That's one of the differences. Um, so, And then as Ellen White came along with further light, there was an adjustment in the position. Now, because remember, the only inspired pioneer was Ellen White. So there's a lot of great stuff to study and read from the pioneers, and they did a lot better job than most of us in studying the Bible. But where their views conflict with what Ellen White says, I'm going to go with what Ellen White says over what Uriah Smith says or over what Joseph Bates says or even James White. As good as they may have been, I'm going to go with what the Spirit of Prophecy says. That's, that's our test of faith. But we're thankful for the good study and foundation that the pioneers laid for us. So E.J. Wagner, this is from his book, Christ and His Righteousness, pages 21 and 22. This is what he says. The scriptures declare that Christ is the only begotten Son of God. He is begotten, not created. So that's a catchphrase because people will say, oh, I don't think Jesus was created. But what they're saying is is he was begotten or brought forth from the Father. As to when he was begotten, it is not for us to inquire, nor could our minds grasp it if we were told the prophet Micah tells us all that we can know about it in these words. And now he quotes Micah 5.2, and you can read it. We're going to read Micah 5.2 several times, but the key phrase is at the end where it says, whose goings forth have been from of old from the days of eternity. So then he goes on to say, there was a time when Christ proceeded forth and came from God from the bosom of the Father, but that time was so far back in the days of eternity that to finite comprehension it is practically without beginning. So clearly Wagner believed that Christ had a beginning that he was begotten. And then he goes on to say, but the point is that Christ is a begotten son and not a created subject. He has by inheritance a more excellent name than the angels. He is a son over his own house, and since he is the only begotten son of God, he is of the very substance and nature of God and possesses by birth all the attributes of God. So notice he's saying he's by substance and nature God, and he possesses these by uh, as attributes. And then he goes on to say, for the father was pleased that the son should be the express image of his person, the brightness of his glory, and filled with all the fullness of the Godhead. So, you know, it sounds pretty good, but again, when you say that he proceeded out of the father and he possesses these attributes, you are making Christ less than the father. And that's just what the enemy would have for us to do. Because the enemy hates Jesus. Now, let's look at some of these arguments for the beginning of Christ. So they quote Micah chapter 5 verse 2 and talks about how he came from Bethlehem. And the key phrase is, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting, or in the marginal reading, from the days of eternity. Now, in my mind, when I see eternity or everlasting, when I read that in the Bible, that means forever. But to them, it actually means a beginning point. One of my friends that I dialogued with says, if it said through everlasting, that would mean there would be no beginning point. But because it says from everlasting, that means there was a beginning point to the everlasting. And I'm like, come on. Because if it's like from everlasting to everlasting, that would mean you have a beginning point that starts everlasting, and you would have an ending point that ends everlasting. From everlasting to everlasting, that would be a starting and an ending point if you were to follow that logic. He's saying, no, it has to be through everlasting to everlasting. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. Everlasting means forever. Now, what they say is that goings forth, this is their key phrase, it comes from a Hebrew word, motza'ah, and the only other place that this is found in the Bible is in 2 Kings chapter 10, 27, where you see a draft house or a bathhouse that is set off from a larger house. And so they see, see, Christ was set apart from the Father the way this draft house is set apart from a larger house. And so see, he had a go, he had a begotten beginning where he was set apart from the Father. And so that's how they try to define this. Now, thankfully, 
we'll see that there's a clear explanation to this. Then they go to Proverbs 8, 22 to 30, which Proverbs 8 is describing wisdom personified, but of course Jesus Christ is wisdom because he's made into his wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So clearly Proverbs 8 is describing Christ, and she applies, Ellen White applies Proverbs 8 to Christ in signs of the times. And in Proverbs 8, it says, I was set up from everlasting. And say, see, that's his beginning point when he was set up. I was brought forth. See, now that there it becomes very interesting. I was brought forth. And then again, it says, I was brought forth as one brought up with him. You see this several times. Well, let's look at this a little bit deeper. So this phrase goings forth, that word motza'ah, which seems to suggest that he was set apart from the Father, from the days of eternity past. This is the feminine form of this word, but there's a masculine form of the same word motza'ah. And this word is used 27 times in the Old Testament, and two times it is used to describe, this is 2 Samuel 3.25 and Hosea 6.3, it is used to describe a king going about his business. Now, when I see Matt Micah chapter 5 verse 2 where it says his goings forth have been from old from everlasting and he's, he's going to be born as a king in Bethlehem, I see a king going about his business. I see the king going about his business. I don't see this as a begottenness where he morphs out of the substance of the Father in eternity past. This is actually just Christ coming out of, or being the king who is coming forth as a baby. So Micah 5.2 is describing the king going about his business. Now, interestingly, Ellen White then has a statement where she quotes Micah 5.2, and she makes a very powerful statement about the divine nature of Christ. Notice this. Now, if you read down towards the bottom, she's quoting Micah 5.2, but notice the first statement that she says to introduce Micah 5.2, before Abraham was, I am. Christ is the pre-existent, self-existent Son of God. Now, I might not be an English major, but if Christ is self-existent, that tells me, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful in any means, because I have friends who believe this, but I'm just trying to set this before you clearly. If he is self-existent, that means he didn't come out of the substance of the Father. Now, you can come up with a, a hundred different quotes to try to say, no, 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 it means something different. I'm sorry, when I see this, that makes it so clear to me that Christ is the self-existent Son of God. And then she quotes Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which says, whose goings forth have been from old from everlasting. So she quotes Micah 5, 2, his goings forth have been from old from everlasting, and she says he's self-existent. That means he was not reliant on the substance of the Father to have a beginning. Does that make sense? So, we're also going to see what it means to be the I am. Now, Proverbs chapter 8, Jesus' wisdom personified. Does this passage teach that he had a beginning and was brought forth? Now, Ellen White quotes Proverbs 8 as well. Now, um, she's basically quoting much of Proverbs 8 here. We'll read this briefly. Through Solomon Christ declared, the Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting from the beginning or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was, I brought forth. When he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Now, it, you know, the anti-Trinitarians really like the phrase he was brought forth, but Ellen White continues in the very next paragraph after quoting these verses, and notice what Ellen White says, in speaking of his preexistence, Christ carries the mind back through dateless ages. And then she says, he assures us that there never was a time when he was not in close fellowship with the eternal God. Now, the Anna-Trinitarians are well aware of this statement, and what they say is, is that there never was a time that he was not in close fellowship from the time that he was brought forth from the substance of the Father. 
And again, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but Ellen White is not conveying that idea in this statement. She's saying that there never was a time. That means they have always been together. Not always from when he first came forth. No, it's always from eternity. And he's self-existent. So he's self-existent, and there's never been a time that the Father and the Son have not been in close fellowship with each other. So those are just a few introductory statements. Now I'm going to show you a few statements from the Bible. So what does the Bible say? 1 Timothy 3.16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Who was manifest in the flesh? God. That's Jesus. God was manifest in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was, the word was God, and it says in John 1.14, And the Word was made flesh. This is God. He is justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the wor- world, received up into glory. And then I just quoted John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he was with God, Jesus was with God, but he also is God. The same was in the beginning with God, and then the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now, John 10.30 says, I and my Father are one. John 14.9, he that hath seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1.8, this is the Father speaking to the Son. He says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So when the Father says to Jesus, You are God, and your throne is forever and ever. And then verse 9, I love that as well. It goes on to say, You have loved righteousness, hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Jesus loved righteousness hated iniquity. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and he says to the Laodicean church, if you overcome as I overcame, how did he overcome? By loving righteousness and hating iniquity. You will sit with me in my throne. So the Father says to Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, Hebrews 7, 3 is very interesting. And if you have your Bibles, you should turn to this. This is speaking of the Melchizedek priesthood, because if you study the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 7, you'll see that Christ was a different order of priesthood than the Levitical priesthood, because Christ came out of the tribe of Judah. So then the Apostle Paul compares Christ's priesthood in heaven to the priesthood of Melchizedek, and the Melchizedek priesthood was great, because Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek, and not only that, so that makes Melchizedek greater than the Levitical priest, because Levi came out of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, and Levi was the son of Jacob, and so... This fits the idea that Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Levi. But speaking of the Melchizedek priesthood and of how Christ relates to Melchizedek, Hebrews 7, 3 says, Speaking of Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. So there's no record of Melchizedek's beginning. There's no record of his ending. Just as is true of Christ. Now, this is not speaking of Christ's humanity, because Christ had a beginning in his humanity. He was born in Bethlehem, and he died on the cross. But divinity never died. And Christ's divinity has neither beginning of days nor end of life, because he's from everlasting to everlasting. And so that's another Bible verse that shows that Christ has no beginning and no ending. Now John 8:58 says, this is speaking this is Jesus speaking of himself, verily verily I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And then Hebrews 13:8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, here I like 1 John 5:20 because, you know, John 17:3 says 
Jesus says of the Father, that they might know thee, the only true God. But notice First John 5.20, and we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So here you see Jesus being equated with the true God. And if that's not enough, because they say, oh, well, Jesus is just Lord. Jeremiah 10.10 10 says, but the Lord is the true God. See that? So we see the Son being listed as the true God in First 5, John 5.20, and we see the Lord being listed as the true God in Jeremiah 10.10. He's the living God and an everlasting king. So Jesus Christ is the Lord and the true God. Now notice Isaiah 9.6. This shows, again, that the Father and the Son are one with each other. Isaiah 9.6, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. This is Jesus. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. What else? The Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, John 3.16 is a verse that people even outside of Christianity understand, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now this word begotten is an interesting word found in the Greek. It's monogenes. And if you've taken any science, you'll understand the concept of genus and species, where genus represents a category and so mono means one or unique or only. Genus means category or a kind, meaning Jesus is one of a kind. There's nobody else like him, but he's God who also became man. There's nobody else like him. Now, what does Ellen White say about Jesus? Here's a few statements. Manuscript release, volume 12, page 395. The yoke of obligation was not laid upon him to undertake the work of redemption. Voluntarily, he offered himself a willing, spotless sacrifice. Notice, he was equal with God, infinite and omnipotent. He was above all finite requirements. He was himself the law in character of the highest angels it could not be said that they had never borne a yoke the angels all bear the yoke of dependence the yoke of obedience they are the appointed messengers of him as who is the commander of all heaven going on no one of the angels could become a substitute and surety for the human race for their life is god's they could not surrender it on christ alone the human family depended for their existence notice here's the statement he is the eternal self-existent son on whom no yoke had come. He's eternal and self-existent. Now, again, just studying basic English, eternal means forever. Self-existent means he's not reliant on anyone else for his existence. And then you can read the rest of the quote, but basically the point is is that he's equal with God, he's eternal and self-existent. Now, this next statement is from Desire of Ages. There's a couple of statements on here. Desire of Ages 469. With solemn dignity, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that's John 8:58. Well, now notice how the, the Pharisees reacted. The Jewish leaders reacted. Next paragraph. Silence fell upon the vast assembly. The name of God given to Moses to express the idea of the eternal presence had been claimed as his own by this Galilean rabbi. He had announced himself to be the self-existent one. This is the third quote now that we've seen where Jesus is self-existent. He who had been promised to Israel, whose goings forth have been from old from the days of eternity. So again, his goings forth, Micah 5.2, which is a big verse for the anti-Trinitarians, Ellen White consistently uses that verse to say he's self-existent. And then in letter 119, February 18, 1895, she says, let me tell you what I am means. I am means an eternal presence. And the, the, the Jewish leaders knew exactly what Jesus said when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Meaning, I have been here forever. So, Ellen White adds some very helpful clarity. Now, here's another statement about Christ being self-existent. These are wonderful. This is Bible Commentary, Volume 7, 955, written in 1900. 
These are wonderfully solemn and significant statements. It was the source of all mercy and pardon, peace and grace, the self-existent, eternal, unchangeable one who visited his exiled servant on the isle that is called Patmos. So we know Christ came to John in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And Ellen White says he's the self-existent, eternal, unchangeable one. I mean, how many different times does she need to say it before you're convinced that Christ has always existed? Now, I love this next statement, Medical Ministry, page 92. God always has been. Now, everybody will agree with that, including the anti-Trinitarians. God always has been. He is the great I am, but Jesus says, I am. The psalmist declares, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. He is the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. I am the Lord, I change not, he declares. With him there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now, what's that sentence stay there? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What Bible verse is that quoting? Hebrews 13, 8. So God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he always has been. But Jesus is the one mentioned in Hebrews 13, 8. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He always has been. He is infinite and omnipresent. No words of ours can describe his greatness and majesty. Now here is the famous verse. In Christ is life, original, unborrowed, underived. Now, I'll, I'll say this, and again, I say this with all respect. I'm not trying to belittle other people. I'm just saying I disagree with their position. But what they say about this verse, or not verse, this quote, is that, yes, in Christ is life, original, unborrowed, and underived, because it's the substance of the Father that he has. But is that what Ellen White meant when she wrote that verse? Or, or that statement, excuse me. If that's what she meant, she would say, in Christ is the life of the Father, original, unborrowed, underived. But she didn't say that. And if, if we're expected to parse out that statement to say, no, it doesn't mean that. It actually means that that's the life of the Father in Christ that is original, unborrowed, and underived. Then we start to have a problem with how we interpret inspiration. Because Ellen White does not mean that. And then she goes on to quote 1 John five twelve: He that hath the Son hath life. The divinity of Christ is the believer's assurance of eternal life. So that becomes serious because if you diminish the divinity of Christ to being lesser than God, the Father, then the one who died for you isn't as great as God himself. And now we're starting to get into trouble with our assurance of eternal life because the one who died for us wasn't God. It was someone just a little bit less than God who is the divine son of God. But no, he is God and in him is life original, unborrowed, and underived. And I am thankful that by faith, I can believe that Jesus, who is God, died for me. That gives me much assurance and hope. It's not a lesser being than God that died for me. It was God himself. So some Iarians will argue that this is the life of the Father that is in Christ, that is original, unborrowed, and underived. It is obvious that Ellen White did not mean this. She makes no qualifiers in the statement. She was not sending a subliminal message in which the true meaning would be discovered later. The plain reading of the statement is obvious. And he is the pre-existent, self-existent son of God. Now, how many of you have heard of Emil Andreasen? Okay, most of you. Maybe a few of you haven't. But Emil Andreasen was kind of the in the transition between the early pioneers and then um, the next generation. He was alive while Ellen White was still alive. Um, and then um, Ellen White died during his lifetime. But he wrote many different books. There was a time where he was probably one of the leading authors in the Adventist church. He wrote the book, The Sanctuary Service. He wrote an excellent commentary on the book of Hebrews. Um, a number of other books that he's written. And he actually is the scholar that wrote the commentary on the book of Hebrews for the original Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary. And 
in his early conversion into the Seventh Adventist Church, he accepted what many of the, the pioneers of the church believed, and that was a semi-Aryan position that Christ proceeded from the substance of the Father in eternity past. Now, he had a change of mind, and we're going to see how that happened. I'm quoting now from an article written by Jerry Moon, and you'll see the source for it in the next slide. Ellen White's assertions of Christ's eternal self-existence came as a shock to the theological leadership of the church. M.L. Andreessen, who had become an Adventist just four years earlier at the age of 18, and who would eventually teach at the church's North American Seminary, said that the new concept was so different from the previous understanding that some prominent leaders doubted whether Ellen White had really written it. Now, you'll have to admit, if you have a, an entrenched viewpoint on a theological point, and then the prophet comes along and writes something very different, you're going to have, to, you're going to have some hard questions to go through. And so... After Andreasen entered the ministry in 1902, he made a special trip to Ellen White's California home in Elmshaven to investigate the issue for himself, and she welcomed him and gave him access to all of the manuscripts, to her manuscripts. Now, he brought with him a number of quotations that he, quote, wanted to see if they were in the original in her own handwriting. So he was doubting. I don't know that she wrote these statements. I've got to see it in her own handwriting. Just because it's printed doesn't mean that I, uh, I, I'm sure that she wrote it. And, he, and notice this, he says, I was sure Sister White had never written, in Christ is life original, unborrowed, underived. But now I found it in her own handwriting just as, a, as it had been published. It was so with other statements. As I checked up, I found they were Sister White's own expressions. Now, that statement, In Christ's Life, Original, Unborrowed, Underived, is found in the book Desire of Ages, which is her leading book on Christology. So if you want to have an understanding of the divine and human nature of Christ, study the book Desire of Ages. You can go to all the different manuscripts and other statements, but Ellen White's statements about who Christ is in the book Desire of Ages is so clear. And, you know, I'm going to mention this again in the next presentation, but there is a belief by some in the church today among anti-Trinitarians who believe that some of Ellen White's writings have been tampered with to support the current view of the Trinity in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, I, I'll, I have the quote in my next presentation, but Ellen White says that one of the very last deceptions of Satan is to make her writings of none effect. So if we don't know which of her writings we can trust, because some of them have been tampered with, then what really can we believe from her writings? So thankfully, Brother Andreasen gained some clarity and went forward from that encounter with a new understanding of who Christ was. And he changed his viewpoint that Christ has existed from all eternity, that he is the self-existent one. And, you know, I'm hopeful that perhaps if some of you are here today who've been exposed to some of those ideas are going to, again, take some of these clear statements that Christ is the pre-existent, self-existent Son of God, that in him is life, original, unborrowed, underived, that these statements will, will give you greater clarity and that Christ, that Christ truly is God. Now, um, I do believe that in this day and time, now that greater light has come, to remain in darkness would be to place ourselves under the enemy's yoke. I believe that the pioneers were very sincere in their understanding, and until the greater light came, they were not under the yoke of the enemy. But now that we have greater light from inspiration, there's no excuse for us to hang on to an idea just because the pioneers taught it. Because Ellen White is the only inspired pioneer. Now think about this. Lucifer challenged Christ's authority in heaven. Anti-Trinitarians, many of them, 
uh, among some of the variations, do not believe that Christ is God to the extent that the Father is, so they thus have diminished him to a lesser role than the Father. So he's the Son of God and a divine being, but he's not God in personality, only in substance and nature. And that's not something that we as Seventh-day Adventists really should be arguing over at this time of earth's history. Jesus is coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And when we see him in the clouds, we're going to say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. But if we're saying, well, no, 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 he's, he's a divine being, but he's not God in personality, that's exactly what Lucifer wants to happen in this church. And when we get into arguments and people are splitting our churches over this very thing, that's exactly what Lucifer wants to have happen in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And we need to call this for what it is. Now, I don't necessarily have a problem with someone who quietly believes something but doesn't make it a salvational issue. But when you tell me that I'm going to receive the mark of the beast and that I'm part of the omega of apostasy and I'm not going to experience righteousness by faith and I'm not going to receive the outpouring of the latter rain because I believe that Jesus is God, I have a problem with that. That's a major problem, and it's such a basic point of teaching. This is just what Satan wants. He wants Seventh-day Adventists who do not accept Jesus as God in all of his fullness. Satan challenged the authority of Christ in heaven, and now he's trying to get Seventh-day Adventists to challenge the authority of Christ in a variety of ways here on this earth, one being this, And we're going to talk about this in our fourth presentation. Christ has delegated his authority. His highest authority is the general conference in session on this earth. So if he can't get you to believe the anti-Trinitarian thing, then he'll get you to challenge the authority of Christ that he has delegated to the general conference in session. And then you say, oh, well, um, my individual conscience doesn't allow me to accept the authority of the general conference in session, even though the servant of the Lord says that when you have a representative group of delegates from around the world field assembled in session, its decisions shall have authority, meaning you submit to that authority even if you don't agree with it. And so, individual conscience is the argument that Lucifer used in heaven when he said, I can't submit to to Jesus' authority. I'll submit to the Father, but not to Jesus. Philippians 2.6, let's go to Philippians 2. Powerful verse, and we're going to read a few verses, not just verse 6. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He's equal with God because he is God, but made himself of no reputation. And the marginal reading says he emptied himself and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, how many should bow? every knee should bow. God alone is worthy of worship, and every knee will bow someday. The righteous and the unrighteous, even the devil, will bow, not because he is worshiping him out of adoration, but he is acknowledging the authority of Jesus, the Son, who is God. And this is a God I can believe in. This is a God I can worship because he humbled himself. We live in a world where the leaders of this world, there's a meme going around on Facebook where it shows all these world leaders who aspired to be God, and then then the response is, but only one God became man. And that's Jesus Christ. That's a God that I can believe in. That's a God I can submit to. That's a God that I can give my life to because he humbled himself. 
and he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And I am looking forward to the day where every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it's unfortunate that we have confusion in our church today about who Jesus is. Now, thankfully, most of the church hasn't fallen for this, but this is a trap that the devil has set up, especially for conservative Seventh-day Adventists. So while, you, so while they may not be buying into the idea of evolution and the acceptance of homosexuality, and that's good that they're not accepting those things, none of us should be, but they're accepting a heresy that is denying the equality of Christ with God the Father, and that is preparing the way for them to be deceived in the end. And remember, Galatians 5 says that heresy is a manifestation of the work of the flesh. So, closing thoughts. It's alarming that there are some Seventh-day Adventists who do not believe that Jesus is God and that he has not existed through all eternity. That is alarming to me. Now, if all we had were the pioneer writings, I could maybe give a little bit more leniency to that. But now that Ellen White has come along and says that Christ is the pre-existent, self-existent Son of God, and that in him is life original, unborrowed, underived. And she says that there never has been a time that he has not been in close fellowship with the Father. Those statements should, because I believe all of the, the anti-Trinitarians use Ellen, as, Ellen White as a source of inspired authority. So now that we have those statements, that should settle the matter. It really should. And the Bible statements are clear as well, that God was manifest in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That should clear up this issue. And my belief is their views require twisting the plain reading of inspiration in order to accept their presuppositions. Now, you know, the interesting thing is, is that they say they're using the plain reading of Scripture to say that Jesus is the Son and that he, he was brought forth. But we've seen that there are clear Bible verses in Ellen White's statements that make those ideas not, um, not acceptable. The claim that we must accept their views in order to receive the latter reign and the seal of God is heresy and a deception. Now, if, if some want to hold to these views and not push them to the front, you know, I'm not interested in going on a witch hunt towards everyone who may believe this, but who quietly holds it to themselves. What I'm saying is, is that if this is brought into the church and it's agitated and it's made a testing truth, so that if you don't accept that you're not going to receive the, the latter reign and the seal of God, that's when it needs to be dealt with. Um, so that, that's, that's the, the challenge that, that we as a church are facing in some circles right now. Now, I, I put this slide up at the beginning of, of the presentation, and I'm going to mention this again here as we're bringing this to a close. This book by an Australian Seventh-day Adventist minister is um, an excellent book. It's the Trinity, What Has God Revealed? It goes through the issues of Christ. It goes through the issues of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, all of those things. Um, and some of what I share today comes from that book. Not all of it, but some of it. And um, I want to draw attention to your fact that if you are interested in getting this book, you can find this book at the Audioverse booth. Um, we have some coupons up front here. If you'd like to get one, you can come up here and I'll give it to you. Um, but again, this, this is the book here, um, The Trinity, What Has God Revealed by Pastor Glenn Parfit. And I, if you want to do some further study on this, I highly recommend that you get this book. So friends, I just want to encourage you, be faithful to the Word of God. Follow Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who is God. And someday soon, may we all say, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. Amen. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the clarity that we have on who Jesus is. We are so thankful that he is the Son of God who came to this world to save us and that he is God. 
and that we can believe in him as our God and that we can submit ourselves to him because he is our savior and Lord. May we have clarity of who we worship and of who we believe in. May we be found faithful when Jesus comes. And I pray that as we continue to go through these meetings here at GYC, that we would give our lives fully and completely to Jesus. And may his life be seen in us and through us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to, I want to invite you to come back to part two of our seminar. We're going to go through the the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. We're going to go through a same, same type of study dealing with the Holy Spirit. And so... We'll take a 15-minute break, and we will start up again at 1045. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.com dot org.